venture capitalists, their funds, they are not able to manage risk in a systematic way. So they use a hand-waving heuristic to decide where they place their funds. And so they're obviously going to place their funds with people that go to, you know, 10 or 12 universities and maybe very rarely outside of that come through certain circles of friends. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, talking today with uh, Christopher Sweat, who is a, a philosopher, a thinker, someone that I met online, as I've met most of my friends and contacts in the last 10 years. There are some friends I have I haven't ever met in person, probably never will. Some live as far away as uh, Uganda, Egypt, whatever. Uh, but today, Chris, it's a pleasure to, to be talking one-on-one -on -one again. Yeah, you too. And I, the internet's a powerful place, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing. I have guys that, uh, and gals that apply for jobs to work on different projects or internship. Never met them. I don't, actually don't know if they're male or female. <laughs> I know nothing about <laughs> them. <laughs> and I'm sending them money and I'm, you know, they could be bots who for all I know. Uh, but Chris, you're a, you're a remarkable intellect. And I know you don't feel that word is completely free from uh, maybe overburdensome uh, uh, character. So I want to talk about intellectual uh, uh, and being on the internet in this in this day and age. But I just want to point out that uh, I have you know really utmost respect for 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 you going back to school as you are now. One of my you know in some sense rival institutions because you see Boulder uh, gets uh, some of the best students in the world, and I'm sometimes yeah. fighting against them to get people like you and get people like my graduate students. But anyway, man, thank you so much for coming. And thank you for the effort that you're putting into, you know, just your dreams and, and what you're trying to do. And we're going to talk about all your cool projects. But uh, I wanted you to introduce yourself. What's your world line, as we say in physics? What got you to this point? From where did you come? Your origin story in the science fiction sense. Um, tell my audience who might not be as familiar with you from your online work as I am. Yeah, 100%. I think um, I, I think I started out as a tinkerer, as a lot of um, thinkers or experimenters uh, kind of started out. And I, I got really lucky that my tinkering started like around uh, the time that broadband internet was coming out, <laughs> which doesn't seem like an advanced invention these days. Um, and it probably doesn't seem that advanced for some of your young listeners, but that was a huge deal. I was uh, like 10 or 11 years old. So I, my tinkering started with um, just like simple wireless networks and uh, computers. And uh, th that, that moved into um, racing simulators, which is like a whole quest. We could do a whole episode talking about racing simulators, which I feel like are still, it's still kind of an underground scene. Um, and I think through this different kind of experimentation I was doing um, as, a, as a young person, I, I got to see how different systems interacted with other systems. And I, I got addicted to it. I, I, like, I liked to be able to test things in what I guess was somewhat of a controlled space or controlled environment. And I like to push the boundaries. I like to push the envelope. And uh, I think my adult life has been about harnessing my need or desire to push the envelope and to take my experiments or take my perspective or understanding and boil it into something that's useful um, or practi practical, um, you know, in a few different contexts. 
Yeah, so. it's, a rare, it's a rare skill, you know, and I, um, when I'm looking for interns or, or working for students or, or even graduate students sometimes, um, you know, they'll say, well, I don't have any experience, you know, in the lab, uh, but, you know, my dad had a welding shop in, you know, Akron, Ohio. I'm like, that's awesome, yeah. you know, uh, for experimental physics, which is very different from theoretical physics or theoretical science and experimental science. But I think, uh, I'm curious, do you think we're losing a lot of that? Like, I have a car that was, you know, like a Toyota Sienna minivan. I, I, I don't know if you're a dad yet or, or, or have any. Oh, uh, yeah. I got a bunch of kids and uh, you got to get a minivan or else, you know, one of my friends is like, before you have kids, if you get a minivan, you're a weirdo. But after you <laughs> have kids and you don't get a minivan, you're even more weird. I tried okay. to open the hood on that thing once and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do a damn thing. And yeah. I used to tinker with my first car, you know, as the 1970s Volkswagen. I could do, I could do a brake job. I could do, do you think we're losing some of that because of the kind of relentless advance of technology of which you're playing a big part in? Do you think we're yeah. losing some of the ability to even get under the hood literally or figuratively? Yeah. The automation, it seems like the more automation that um, exists, the further we are from the basic processes that are taking place. Like just a simple example of this, and maybe you can give us a physics tie back, but think about like power steering. And a lot of people don't realize this, but there are, um, there are like old school, like uh, rack and pinion type steering mechanisms where yeah. the steering wheel is actually having a direct impact on the wheels that are on the ground when you, uh, uh, do any kind of steering input but now a lot of cars have like a what's called like a hydroelectric power steering mm -hmm. and it's actually not responding directly to the wheels there's a part of the system that is in between the steering wheel and the actual drive wheels so you can't feel the wheels on the ground in the steering wheel anymore and again obviously um, you could rotate it from lock to lock with your pinky finger that's fucking sweet and you don't have to be doing 20 or 30 miles an hour to turn comfortably, you know, and there's people that may not even understand what I'm talking about. Hopefully you're following Brian. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like the more automation that comes into um, these different systems, the further we uh, like, you know, the average human being gets away from, you know, the processes that are going on because they're not involved in them anymore. Yeah. And I think it's, it's true in the aviation industry, you know, I fly little planes around. And, uh, you know, certainly true that automation, you know, fly by wire, uh, all these things uh, kind of harkens back to, you know, in the space race, there's a great book called Digital Apollo uh, from MIT, uh, professor of aerospace engineering. He talks about, I forget the man's name, but he talks about how um, all the lunar command module pilots, guys who were landing, you know, from Neil Armstrong to the last guy, you know, Gene Cerno, whoever, when they landed on the moon at the, it was fully automated. The even the computer of that time, which everyone says we could fit it in your pocket, you know, the whole, um, <laughs> that computer could land the module completely safely. But every single time at the last second, the pilot caught a glimpse of a, a boulder or a crater that had been uncharted. And oh, he had, because what is the highest expression of a pilot? It's landing, right? You don't sure. applaud like for the pilot and cruise, you know, congratulations. But when they make a good landing, uh, you applaud him or her, right? So, um, but I feel like we we kind of are, as Carl Sagan said, never has society been more dependent on technology and less, you know, kind of uh, comprehending of that of that technology and science. Um, yeah. Do you feel like that's that's kind of a 
a positive thing or a negative thing? In other words, like, can we just remove people from having to understand? I mean, I don't understand even, you know, they say that actually, Chris, I don't know if you ever heard of it. They say that there's no person on earth who can do or understand all the steps needed to make a pencil, <laughs> like just a yellow pencil, right? All the different. So do you think that's a, like a good thing? Like it's, I don't need to know how a pencil is made to use it, but do you think there's, um, you know, virtue to that or is it, or is it leading us in a dangerous place? I mean, I probably have, I probably have still what's like considered an underground opinion on this, but, but I guess automation ties into labor mm -hmm. and that I've heard people make these arguments that the more automation that is created, the more different types of processes that exist, they think that we're entering this era of like hyper specialization, which they think is uh, potentially detrimental because it'll make it to where at some point in some distant future, everyone's job will be so specialized that, um, you know, uh, it'll just be some specialized repetitious thing. We'll all be like a, a, like a janitor or a call center employee or some, something like that. And I don't believe that. I don't think that we're going to have a scenario where we won't still need highly specialized, high skilled labor. But, um, but I do think that, my opinion is that the technology is getting away from a lot of people and I don't like it because when I try to advance or extend thinking, um, there's a lot of people that are still stuck in an old model that I think like doesn't let the technology have as much room as it needs to produce, um, I don't know, a more efficient future or a more capable future. And it seems like you have these like special domains like aerospace um, or uh, you have these other domains that are like super concentrated on real specific expertise. And those domains can move uh, through these kind of waves of technological advancements in many ways uh, more quickly than domains that have a broader reach or maybe um, require more people to be involved, like something silly like. Uh, like some kind of enterprise software like Salesforce, for example. There's millions of people that work in and out of Salesforce. And so you have so many, such a wide variance of skills and abilities in that system and, and different environments that it gets deployed into. Whereas like a, how many spacecraft are, you know, uh, flying on any given Sunday, right? right? Exactly. Um, what were you like as a kid? Were you like, you know, the kind of kid who just like wanted to play with chemistry sets and was frustrated because they stopped including radium in those chemistry sets like when <laughs> I was a kid? Uh, were you more of a digital tinkerer as you are now? Um, and then, you know, kind of delve into, take us back, tell the story of, of your kind of upbringing, what brought you to this, you know, kind of uh, sense that I think you have the rarest trait of all upcoming guests, uh, Ryan Holiday is coming on the show to talk about courage. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. I'm, you know, I don't even think, I, I didn't even know how old you were until you told me, but, but, um, but, you know, at any age to do it non-traditional, my mother went back to college, got her bachelor's, her master's in social work. She was in her fifties, sixties, um, after having me and, you know, ruining her academic career, but <laughs> talk us through that. Where did you get that preternatural courage is it is it inborn is it a gift is it is it just based on hard work where does that come from and uh what were you like what was your kind of things that fascinated you as a 12 year old which i assume plays no small role in who you are now 
Yeah. Okay. Whatever happened to me as a young child, I don't know, because I, um, I've always spoken outside of my pay grade or whatever expertise people think should be available to me. <laughs> yeah. So like when I was running on this, like this hardcore simulators, everyone was in their twenties and thirties, but I was 11, 12, 13, 14. Some of these people still keep up with me two decades later. Cause apparently they couldn't believe what we were doing because these simulators took practice like you know they took tons of iteration and a lot of people still had to have like some physical reference point whereas when you're in a simulator it's all based off a of visual reference point so I was obviously like uh making highly sophisticated inferences with super limited information right which I guess apparently is a unique skill right yeah um but uh, I didn't have uh, any like academic uh, support or like I wasn't showing like any of these traditional markers of intelligence or early success. It was not in any of these gifted programs. Frankly, by the time I got to high school, I didn't care. <laughs> I think I uh, finished high school with a 1.8 GPA. And some of the classes that I got bad grades in, I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> so so there was always this dual life of I had these interests that I was excelling in that were clearly advanced right um but the school system somehow I just slipped through the cracks I I, I can't explain it I I slipped through the cracks yeah. um so I if I look back to when I was young and it's probably it's still like this now but I think I've always been somewhat of a lone wolf you know, I, I have friends from different circles, but but I think I've always been somewhat of a lone wolf. I, I liked mountain biking when I was younger. Uh, you know, I listened to my Discman. I would try to get the best skip protection possible so that my CD would keep rotating and I could hear the audio. Yeah. Uh, and then again, I did so I did so much on the computer that computers and the internet have been second nature to me for as long as I can remember, which is like, you know, why with COVID or like having devices anywhere, all this stuff is just feels like what, what I've always been accustomed to. It doesn't feel like anything new necessarily. Mm. So you weren't like that kid who drove your parents crazy, you know, trying, <laughs> trying to take uh, the, the computer, the router apart at home to see if you could uh, speed up the, the wire. No, it's wild. I was empowered to do those things. So I got to, I have to thank my mom for that. She, she, she like empowered me to experiment um, in the areas that I don't know, she must have noticed I might have had some kind of strength there. Yeah. So I was always empowered to uh, tinker around with, uh, you know, like wireless hardware, computers, bikes, you know, any system that I could get my hands on. Uh, and but the issue is that a lot of my friends that share some of these characteristics are introverted. Yes. And uh, there's only one person in my life that thinks I'm introverted, but she'll figure it out one day. <laughs> uh, everyone sees me as hardcore extroverted and a super gregarious and outgoing. So I would say I'm probably somewhere in the middle, but I've always been outspoken about what I can see. Or right. what I'm observing, and that's the confidence and the courage I spoke about earlier with, with you, because you, sure. you know, a lot of people wouldn't be doing this, you know, getting a bachelor's degree. You, you, uh, you're doing what this guy Austin Cleon, I think, calls he calls you know, showing your work, like you're developing stuff in public, and I think yep. that, that is kind of you know, it was interesting. 
and I like to get your take on this, but um, I've been, you know, my new book is about like the imposter syndrome, overcoming that. And, but there's like two different sides to that because it comes from insecurity. Like I'm not good enough to do it. But then I was thinking um, in an interview, I was, just, you know, just kind of thinking out loud, which is always dangerous, but, um, but it's still, I think has a kernel of truth that the opposite of the imposter syndrome is also based on insecurity and that's arrogance. Like when mm -hmm. people have like arrogant narcissistic tendencies, I think a lot of times they're really insecure and they're just covering up for it with bravado and bluster. But I think, yeah, the, this notion of, of creating in public of, of, you know, not listening to, I don't care what you, what you think I should do. What my friend James Altucher says, you know, choosing yourself, like who needs these gatekeepers. And, and that's why I think again, you know, not to like, you know, make this a love fest, but, but going back to school, that decision I think is very, uh, is very telling about your character because a lot of people wait for the gatekeepers. You know, when we're in high school, uh, you know, some of us that got, you know, maybe a 2.8 GPA, <laughs> not the one, but I mean, we were, I was concerned getting into a good college. Why? So I could go to a good grad school. Why? So I could get a good postdoc. Why? So I could get an assistant professor. Why? Yeah. So I could get tenure. Why? So I could, you know, win a Nobel Prize, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, um, but you're not listening to that. So why Boulder? I mean, you may, you move, you were on the East Coast before, right? Nah, actually I've been in well, I'm in Washington right now. I'll be like, in I'm Boulder sorry, you're tomorrow. in Washington. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Well, I'll be in Boulder tomorrow because I still split the time. Right. But um, actually, I so I grew up until age 10 in the Bay Area. And then I moved to Colorado when I was very young, Colorado mm. Springs. Mm -hmm. I actually spent 11 years in Denver Metro. Mm. So Boulder is like, um, I mean, my last place in Colorado before putting one in Boulder was at the edge of Boulder County. They probably hung out in Boulder like three times a week. I, I worked in 2014. I worked for an enterprise tech startup in Boulder. Boulder's always been like up the street from me. Yeah, I've got lots of friends in Boulder County. And for me, honestly, I was told by some mentors in the Bay Area that maybe I should be a little bit more ambitious with where I applied. And I heard that. But then I kind of also decided that um, Boulder is still a respected school in most parts of the country. And I'm pretty sure I'll be able to take whatever I do at Boulder and okay. transfer to uh, top 20 as long as I perform well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's a community I've spent a lot of time in. I actually love that town as nuanced as it is. There's things I hate about it, but many things that I love about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's got kind of the, you know, big city adjacent but it's got the you know small town it's got the national laboratory university i think i could you know pretty much exist anywhere there there's a some kind of college or university i think you need that you know life of the intellectual and there i want to pivot uh clumsily to intellectualism uh, and you know yeah. one of the first rooms i ever met you on clubhouse you're very prolific uh, was a rant that you were doing which is the title of your substack which we'll put uh links to in the show notes and uh, refer to, I'm subscribed actually twice under two different, yeah, so, so you're, you're, I'm inflating your, your sub count <laughs> uh, as you deserve. But I met you in a, in a room on Clubhouse a long time ago, or I, we, after I met, but I was, I was you know, kind of just, just really curious and listening in. You had a room titled like, can we talk about, you know, uh, black public intellectuals? Yep. And I, again, Chris, again, this is whatever, I'm not going to apologize, but you know, no, no, no. I was like kind of courageous because you're, you're going out there and that's like kind of a third rail in, in, in the, in the public 
intellectual. I don't even know what a public, like, would you call me a Jewish intellect? I mean, I know a lot of people that wouldn't you know, say I'm an anti-intellectual, but, uh, but the uh -huh. point being, you know, it's, it's such a loaded term. And then you add another, you know, kind of loaded term on top of that black and, and um, you know, but you're just like unafraid, you'll, you'll just take it on. And so I want to talk about that and then we'll get into your, sure. your Substack and specifically your most recent post, which, you know, as a paying subscriber, no, I don't, I don't know if I have to pay anything, but you haven't updated in a while, man. You gotta, you gotta put out a new rant. I'm, I'm really jonesing for it, but talk about yep. what is a black intellectual? Do they exist? Are you one? Uh, you know, how, how does that term make you feel? How do you react to that? Yeah, no, actually I've tried to be critical of the idea of a black intellectual from so many angles now. So we'll have to catch people up in a few short minutes. Yeah. Uh, but I think that black intellectual obviously served a purpose in society when there weren't many ways for uh, groups to communicate with uh, these certain parts of the black community, if you will, which again, black is a word that um, I don't even think entered like the center of uh, the way that we referred to people in America until more recent times, like the last 40 or 50 years, 60 years, I don't know. Um, but uh, there's been this like big idea that like when somebody who is considered black, which is still loosely defined, speaks about something intellectual, then that person is a black intellectual. And I think where I get fired up is, um, you know, like in my comparative politics class at University of Colorado right now, we've got a great professor in that class. But the entire frame of why is the West so rich is about European dominance and how that extended itself with the found, you know, creation of the United States. But and it's basically anchored in in this kind of like, all right, uh, white dominance. I'm not going to say supremacy because that that's a whole different conversation. I got different opinions on that, but it's all framed and underneath this kind of lens of white dominance. So. To me, if I produce something inside of academia, you know, later in my life or, or, you know, in the next couple of years, or if I produce something meaningful out in society, then what I'm creating is considered second class because Black indicates uh, what people have correlated with a marginalized group. And therefore, I can only respond to people that think about something in the vein of Black intellectual which also makes a bunch of assumptions about how I grew up and what my understanding of blackness is or isn't. And so I was just frustrated with like the fact that I feel like there are people that fit into this category of black intellectual that weaponize it. And some of them are, you know, younger than me and they've got big channels um, or I would get calls from certain uh, people in media and they would box me in with uh, thinkers that, uh, you know, they thought uh, fit a category based on race. And, and I, I honestly, I think that's bullshit. Like, it's a very frustrating thing for me to accept that my thought, my thinking, where I'm coming from is basically uh, second rate uh, when we look at the way that um, our society has organized and the way that it speaks about class and the way that it speaks about its ability to interact with political institutions uh, if i think i'm a black intellectual and i'm sure that, so i'm sure brian there's a bunch of ways that we could talk about this but yeah 
Yeah, because, you know, I often find it, um, look, you know, as I've said on my channel many times to Neil deGrasse Tyson, my best friend, Stefan Alexander, uh, you've probably heard it, you know, Jim Gates and I talking about it. And I'm like, you know, there's no doubt that Blacks pay the Black tax. I mean, you have to do stuff in academia that I'll never have to do. And, and uh, uh, but, you know, and I think there is a burden on me, uh, which, which is, uh, which I take seriously. And that I want to find as many black, whatever, scientists and, and people in the technical world, A, because they have a merit, they have a meritocratic, you know, stance to be on my show or in my sphere of influence as, as minuscule or big as that might be. But I also view it as my job. And I've had, I think, more, you know, black uh, scientist on my show um, than almost any other podcast I know about. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying, I think it's, I think we have to do that just as I have a moral obligation to communicate to the public um, because they pay my salary, what I'm discovering. And I feel more scientists have to do that. Sure. So too, the burden is on me, um, not because I think I'm, you know, supremacist or racist in any way, but I have to go and solicit you and I, ha I have to reach out to you. And, and I do that. And sometimes I get rejected, by the way, I've, I've asked, you know, black scientists, you know, no, you've had on, you know, Ben Shapiro, why would I come on your show? You know, or I've had on, you know, uh, some, some black intellectual that they don't like or black scientists, whatever. Um, yep. But I feel it's kind of a double-edged thing. Like in academia, we're told that academia is systemically racist. And I don't like that. You know, it's, it's like if I said, well, academia is systemically anti-Semitic. Well, what's the proof of that? Well, you know, people have to work on being anti-anti-Semitic. Um, no, I, I think that's unfalsifiable. And so when I look at, um, you know, people that, uh, you know, that are doing so much in the public sphere and they happen to be black, I, I, I really view that as a, a for me, I, obviously as a white person, it's, I can't identify in the same way as you, but I view that as insignificant. You know, your intellect is what attracts me to you. And I'd listen to you if you were, you know, whatever race, uh, gender, color, whatever. So I, I wonder about this, this notion that you, ha you have like, people that are spoken of as black leaders or leaders in the black community, but you don't hear that about other groups like Jewish lead, like, I don't know. <laughs> First of all, you know, the old joke is, you know, two Jews, there's three opinions. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> how do you react to that statement, that phrase, you know, black leaders or leader in the black community? Is that, is that like also kind of monolithizing you and, and, and making you defined in this way that, that is anathema to, to your intellectual um, accomplishments? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, because I didn't experience this way of talking about race until after George Floyd. So like, I feel like conversations about race were one way for me before George Floyd. And then after George Floyd, which was a horrendous scenario, but I think that goes without saying, but the conversations about race in America seemed to change significantly. Even had friends call and like apologize crying. And I was like, holy shit, like, um, we've been friends for like a decade. Yeah, right. What are we talking about? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I've never seen myself as a black leader. And uh, I think mixed race being mixed race is complicated. I actually explore this a little bit in my uh, uh, Substack rant, and I hope to expand on this. Uh, I feel like Mixed race identity is one that gets taken off the table by people that have more uh, concrete conceptions of self. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, the black white spectrum, unfortunately, is like at the forefront of political discussions in the United States, even though there are lots of other people that are not white necessarily. 
and definitely aren't black. So I think I've inherited this like complicated identity that my parents didn't give me any instructions or rule books for uh, how to manage. Right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so it makes me straddle this uh, scenario where it's like when I was younger, it was like, Chris, why are you so black? And I'm like, the fuck does that mean? And then it would be like, why are you so white? And I'm like, I really don't understand what you people are talking about. And then as I've gotten older and not felt nearly as insecure about my ethnic, racial identity, whatever you want to call it, I've been able to observe it more. And by the way, most people don't think I'm black, which is fascinating. Wow, it's so incredible. So I get to hear a lot of different viewpoints because I get treated more as a member of the in-group even if I'm not in that group, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so I get to hear a lot of fascinating um, viewpoints. And I think that I, I work with a lot of amazing young people. And, uh, and I've worked on a lot of businesses that I don't talk about just as like just volunteering, helping out in the community. And maybe um, some of these great young people are Black. But that's certainly not the conversation that we have when we're building something, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think that the term black, again, marks this subservience or this like second tier or this bottom class. And that is the last thing that I would want to teach young people to believe about themselves is that they are inherently less than uh, because either society says that out loud um, or because there are certain structures that are in place that maybe reinforce that. Because again, I still believe that we can disrupt some of this thinking or or we can shift these things in the future. And again, a lot of the rhetoric that comes out about race, it's hard to know if it how much of it is real or perceived. Even listening to some of the different networks on television, they bring the statistics forth in a way that appeals to their base, but that doesn't necessarily appeal to the truth or the reality. Um, So I think it's had a big impact on the way that I think about politics, but maybe not as much of an impact on how I think about um, some of the things that I do in the corporate setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I didn't fully appreciate, you know, that it is kind of like uh, a further imposition and whether it's systemic or not, we could debate or we could discuss, but, but the point of like, I'm t- uh, by just saying black, you know, whatever with any other, you know, subsequent noun <laughs> uh, after it, um, it's, it's, it is an imposition by maybe a dominant culture or whatever. Um, but I feel like, you know, it's, it, it, they, sh- you, you know, we shouldn't define it, you know, or people shouldn't define it. The problem is anything in life, you know, Eric Weinstein points is anything is like a spectrum is, is very hard for the human mind to comprehend because it's like quantum mechanics. Like we think classically, but like no one's going to disagree that before your parents met, you didn't exist. And so you couldn't be aborted, say. And then after you're born, you know, uh, you know, no one's going to say, oh, well, like he's not a, he's just a collection of cells. Like you're 30 years old, right? Uh, sure. So the point is, you know, when there's a harmonic, you know, superposition of states, that is ambiguity and the human mind uh, likes to choose black or white, literally. And that's what yep. I think has, is responsible for a lot of uh, people of mixed uh, heritage 
that they, you know, it's the hardest thing. And actually in the, in the Old Testament, my tradition, you know, you're implored not to be a zealot, not to be too, too far to the left or too far to the right. And why do you have to be commanded to do something that's natural? Obviously, you don't have to be commanded to, to love your kids or your puppy. So it must be unnatural to go down the middle. And I see that as a, as a very interesting skill. I want to talk about uh, the newsletter on Substack, Christopher Sweat, um, a rant, uh, which I double subscribe to. Uh, one of the most fascinating posts actually happens to be your last post, uh, not to put too much pressure on you. I know you got uh, bigger and, and other, other stuff that you're involved with, but um, sure. I thought this fascinating. You go back and you talk about what is natural law? What does that really mean? And I think you're yeah. intellectually honest enough to trace it to its roots and its heritage, both in ancient Greece, but also back to the God, you know, centered world of, of, of Europe uh, in the 1600s, you know, 1700s, John Locke. One thing I want to get your reaction to um, is the influence that that Thomas Jefferson um, was influenced by Euclid of all people. So Euclid, in in his Elements, uh, famously says that you know such and such like two parallel lines don't meet. He says that is self-evident. Those words, those are in other words, you don't even have to prove it. It's so obvious. And the funny thing, Chris, as you probably know, it's not true that two parallel lines don't meet. Uh, it only happens in Euclidean flat space, right? So in the universe, it may or may not. So he was actually, you know, not completely right about that. But but to say something is self-evident means it's it's beneath the realm of even having to prove. And yet yeah. Thomas Jefferson, as you know, in the Declaration of Independence refers to these things. What is natural law? What is being self-evident? And um, do you think that like politicians should know a little more mathematics <laughs> than they do now, or at least logic and formal philosophy? Yeah, 100%. In fact, um, and we'll see, I think my thoughts are still being discovered on this, but I think that natural law is like the, uh, uh, the, the crux of arguments that happen in American politics. Yes. <laughs> if we just stop watching what's on television or in the news media. Um, when I think about the laws of nature, like you were saying, these seem to be like really Christian conceptions of uh, uh, rules or constraints that are placed upon us, I guess you could say on a, on a basic level. Um, and I think that a lot of people that have thought about natural law over many years make valid points in certain ways. Like, like maybe, maybe it is self-evident that um, uh, everyone should have access to life, liberty, and justice. Like, like maybe that, okay, fine. Like, like we all assume that it's a duh, that everyone should have access to these three basic principles of democracy, life, liberty, and justice, duh, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the issue is that natural law is going to exclude people yeah. that aren't capable uh, in whatever the current state of the environment is of producing something that um, creates some kind of value, right? And uh, I think this is where a lot of political conversations break down on the environment or on social justice is that you have two parties that have different interpretations of these natural constraints, these self-evident things, uh, you know, things that are supposed to be, um, but maybe aren't. Uh, and you've got one side that says um, it's the Republicans that uh, are preventing us from solving these really meaningful 
social and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, the other side that says it's the Democrats that prevent us from addressing these important issues. And it seems like the Republican thinking in American politics is going to try to trace back to some level of status quo, which means let's keep these, uh, this, these things that are self-evident going. Let's not pursue any type of like government intervention. Let's not try to redistribute wealth or disrupt this current structure of existing. But again, if all society have some type of inequity in them, then that way of thinking seems out of line with solving some of what people would say are the most important problems you know, happening right now, again, around social justice or the environment. Um, but, but I also think, you know, uh, these like the left, we call it, uh, which I think is oversimplified and maybe gives too much credit, but like American liberals are pretending that they're constrained by Republicans when in reality, they're constrained by the constitution. Yeah. And so I'm trying to frame this. I'm trying to frame this argument of both of these parties are constrained by this idea of natural law. And it seems like um, uh, if our law doesn't account for social or environmental constraints, it's no wonder that it can't address social or environmental issues. And again, like what is when people talk about policy, what are they talking about? They're not they're talking about the government printing money. It's obvious that the government has instituted different policies like, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or 1971, for example, 1971 was supposed to integrate schools. But in reality, all it said was that it was illegal to separate people based on race inside of these schools. But that didn't really change the way that society behaved in the environment or the way that people interacted with other groups. It didn't change as much of the thinking as I think people give it credit for. So I'm just, I'm trying to get to the root of, um, uh, kind of issues that I'm observing where the Constitution has these ideas that are ambitious and uh, they've been taught to us as uh, self-evident and which I think um, is similar to like if you're in a church and you're not allowed to ask questions about the scripture and uh, for the first time I'm kind of looking at this and I'm like okay there's some real constraints banked into the way that uh, our Constitution set up and both parties are talking around it. And there also seem to be other more complicated systems that interact with American politicians, the federal government on a regular basis that add additional complexity. And like you said earlier, I'm exploring this um, in near real time because I'm trying to kind of balance out like my... Uh, like how much I like to write and how much I like to express myself in that medium, but then also still bring some uh, academic rigor, right? I don't, I, I'm not trying to make it just all opinion, if you will. No, it's uh, erudite, thoroughly researched, has cited uh, original sources. Uh, I love that you're thinking in public and you're writing in public. I think it's the hardest thing to do. But I think in this day and age, it's, it's one of the most valuable things that we can do, not only for ourselves, but for everybody. Yeah, just to reference your point, you know, as, as I was reading it and thinking about this tension that you keep referring to in that piece, 
Um, I was thinking about Las Vegas odds bookmakers, you know, because they don't make any money if my kid's little league team plays the va vaunted San Diego Padres or your Colorado Rockies, um, not doing so hot now, but, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but if, if they play, there's, they're going to get blown out. My kids are going to get crushed. Right. So what do they do? They have a point spread. And what's the analog of the point spread? Nobody makes money unless there's the point spread is evenly matched. So it boosts up. So what does the media do? They make the narrative equal and not like, you know, oh, it's a tight race and it's a bitterly divided and everything. They won't make any any money if, if you're like, oh, it's it's a total blow. Like American opinions, like totally against this opinion or this, this such. Sure. Um, in the in the last you know, 10 minutes or so, uh, you also think and, and write a lot about uh, finance uh, future tech, you know, venture capital, things like that. Uh, I want to get, uh, first of all, I can't resist because it's always in the news and I've had on guests like Michael Saylor and, and, uh, and, and kind of his, his evil, you know, twin Peter Schiff, who's kind of on the opposite side of things economically, uh, gold. I don't know what to do, Chris. Um, so what do you think about like all these, this, this pace again of technology now it's, it's in the currency network effect. Um, not just in social and in uh, online. What do you make of opportunities? Uh, you know, I can't resist, you know, asking you about, about blockchain and, and so forth. Where do you see this going? And more provocatively, are there opportunities for people in academia like myself to somehow utilize this for the benefit of humanity? Yeah, okay. So there are certain things that I won't be able to speak on effectively here because I've distanced myself from a lot of the blockchain hype yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like um, that, that aside, though, obviously, I've been listening on a regular basis to the different arguments that people make for uh, not necessarily blockchain, but um, cryptocurrency to like replace uh, fiat currency. I've been listening to these arguments for four or five years now. And I, I mean, I have friends that mine and so forth. And I, I have a friend that has stood up a decent mining operation in Kansas City. Like, I mean, it's pretty legit looking at like how a mining operation works and um, how data analytics can play into it and how scientific it can get. So I think like if people can find ways to make money in these new t technology environments, they should. Like I would always encourage that. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I just, oh, I just don't think that it's smart to over-index. And if people are looking at it from an investment perspective, uh, again, not giving any investment advice here, even though I don't have any licenses for that anyway, uh, I don't think anybody should over-index on one asset class if people are making their investments. Um, as far as blockchain goes, uh, again, as with any kind of technology, the more advanced it gets, the more operations it's going to require, like a department of people that um, are able to support it and have a specific set of skills and capabilities. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm optimistic, you know, that we'll find ways to integrate these technologies, but, but trying to integrate the newer technologies, like that being my practice for the last like seven or eight years, like something I've been dedicated to, uh, it's not simple and, and uh, you know, it's hard to see through the hype. Yeah. So, but, but I always, I'm always optimistic. I just don't think it's smart to over index for the people that are making money currently on these different technologies. They should keep doing that. Mm -hmm. just, what about, yeah. Talk about venture capital and, and where, why does that appeal to you? 
Um, you know, it seems to me like, again, there's so many barriers to entry. There's so many gatekeepers. You know, it's very hard. I mean, Robin Hood, what are we going to do? I mean, so, but, but talk about it. What is it? What does it appeal to you? Why should you turn your, you know, limited amount of time, but vast intellectual capital towards this, this, you know, relatively challenging modality to, to, uh, to at least have some degree of, of aspirational wealth? Yeah, no, I think um, I started my first business when I was 19. Mm. And uh, I, I had some success. We'll talk about it some other time. But it, it, it was enough success to make me overconfident. So basically it took me another eight or nine years to actually build a decent business that could turn a profit and provide for me. And uh, that, that was kind of my quest of like understanding as much about business as I possibly could. And uh, come to find out, and this is one of the reasons why I decided to go back to university, but come to find out the access to, you know, technology, the Bay Area, startups, venture capital, the access to these things, the, the things that are needed to start um, legitimate entrepreneurial ventures, especially the ones that um, are in the vein of technology, mm -hmm. it's very constricted. And so I, I had gone in and out of enough um, tech companies and seen enough iterations of software and seen a lot of companies grow and become very dominant over the last decade where once they had these like really basic primitive tools that weren't that exciting. And next thing you know, they're like in 80% of the global 2000. And so I, I wanted to know like why that was happening. What, what, was the, what was the trajectory? And I came to learn that venture capital uh, list, venture capital list, their funds, they are not able to manage risk in a systematic way. So they use a hand-waving heuristic to decide where they place their funds. And so they're obviously going to place their funds with people that go to, you know, 10 or 12 universities and maybe very rarely outside of that come through certain circles of friends. And because of the way that they uh, make their investments, they need outsized returns which means that they're only able to invest in companies that have uh, uh, outsized uh, total addressable market, a uh, place that they can sell the service to. And I'm like, well, that's interesting that this venture capital that really only can invest in very specific business models and invest only in very specific types of individuals, um, you know, is considered like this iconic form of American capitalism, which right. I think couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and so, so anyways, uh, when I'm speaking about different things, especially being as outspoken as I can um, around technology or software of the Bay Area venture capital, I just like to understand like there's a certain capital structure behind these technologies. Mm -hmm. And it obviously, um, it has a big impact on uh, what what these technologies can produce in the near term. Um, and, and it has a big influence on, you know, what's possible down the road. And so I, again, I can't look at one part of the system and not try to look at a few other parts of the system to understand what's going on. Well, uh, Christopher Sweat, we have had a fascinating conversation. I could certainly talk to you uh, for many more hours. I'm looking forward to Sunday meeting in person. I don't think all relationships should stay online. And I hope to meet you maybe when I'm out at NIST and my colleagues at Boulder. Yes. Uh, and for now, I just want to encourage everybody to read 
uh, Chris's uh, Substack, which is phenomenal. And I'd like to get some advice on myself someday about doing a Substack. I haven't started that. I have a newsletter, but not a Substack. So please subscribe to that. Show notes will contain the link information. Follow me on Twitter, Clubhouse, uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, everywhere that social media profiles can be seen. I follow him religiously. And Chris, it's just such a pleasure. I'm so glad you accepted my invitation. And uh, I hope we can have many more conversations on, online and off. And uh, I just want to congratulate you again. Courage is a rare commodity. And, uh, and I really, whenever I see kind of you light up on Clubhouse or whatever, it's a, it's a must tune in. So keep up the awesome work, my friend. Thank you so much, Brian. This was fun. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. And uh, I hope to, again, see you soon, Chris. See you soon, Brian. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hey, y'all, just a simple request before you head out to the rest of your day or night. And that's to sign up for my Monday Magic Messages. These are simple, sweet, short conversations that I want to have with you. And they entail the following subjects. One is a memory. One is an appearance that I have had. One is a genius idea from around the universe of ideas that I explore. One is an image or an idea. And the last is a conversation, my podcast or my uh, videos with the guest of Du Saman, the guest of the week. So if you'd like to do that, please go to briankeating.com and there's a pop-up and you'll get to subscribe to my mailing list. And I make it very easy to subscribe to, very easy to leave if you should want to leave. And I hope that you'll find these uh, Monday Magic messages quite interesting because as Sir Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I like to bring you a new perspective from the universe of into the impossible and do so with an eye towards the things that are most interesting. So I hope you'll subscribe. Again, briankeating.com, sign up, and uh, your money back if you don't like it. Of course, it doesn't cost anything. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>